0: There once was a farmer who lost his horse. The horse ran away. This was a more traditional village where the neighbors knew each other and they talked to each other. They knew a lot about each other's personal lives and there was a lot of gossip. So the gossip spread and then the neighbors came to the house of the man to tell him how sad they were that um, this misfortune happened to him. And they told him, that's too bad. And he replied and said, maybe. The next day, the horse did not only return back to the man, but brought with it seven Wild horses. So again, the rumor spread, and in the evening, the neighbors came to the man and told him, That's so fortunate, that's so lucky, that's such a great thing. And the man again replied and said, Maybe. The next day, the son of the man was an early riser, so he woke up early and said, okay, the first thing I'm going to do today is I'm going to tame one of those horses. He was one of those people that like to challenge themselves. He approaches the horses that were now uh, in the barn and he picks one that he thinks maybe this is easier to tame. And eventually things happen and he ends up riding the horse. But the horse by this time was still violently resisting. And in one of those violent jumps that the horse was making, the son shoots up into the air, falls into the grass and cracks his left leg. Once more, the rumor spreads And the neighbors gather in front of the man's house to tell him how unfortunate this was. Such bad news. Again, the man replies and says, maybe. The next day, the army officers come into the village to inform everyone that a war had started with the neighbor country and that as a matter of urgency all male people between the ages of 15 and 55 were going to be recruited for the army when they inspect the son of the man they quickly notice that his leg was broken so they reject him and once more the rumour spread and the villagers gather by the house of the man to tell him how lucky they were and how fortunate this was for them and again the man replies and says maybe hello again my name is alex i'm glad to welcome you to yet another episode Last time we spoke about the ego we introduced um, the ego mechanisms and basically how the mind keeps you trapped in time. We said that the ego has this need to be bigger to add more to itself to have a bigger image of itself And that it employs a lot of mechanisms in you, in your mind. That's where the mechanisms are deployed. In order to strengthen itself. If you look at it like a disconnected entity. That's a useful way of looking at it. That is who you think you are. So the mind creates this entity Alex in my case and then this Alex he's like a suit that I need to learn to use when I am born I go into this training that Ram does called somebody training where they teach me I learn how to use the suit of Alex and I get stars you know from my teachers and my parents whenever I do something that they think are positive steps in the direction of establishing an identity for myself. And very soon I learn who I am, I learn what I like, at least I learn what people tell me I like, and I have this very strong need to hold on to what other people tell me I like. In my case, it was meat. There was a lot of meat Uh, being consumed in the culture where I come from and for whatever reason I ended up having this identity of myself as one that loves meat you know I mean meat is tasty I'm, I'm sure if you've tasted it if you remember what it tastes like you will say yes it's quite tasty and if you give something as tasty to a child they are going to like it because it's a It's an experience that engages your senses in a strong way. Your gustatory senses. In the same way that if you give an iPhone to a child, the iPhone is going to be so stimulating to the child's vision that, of course, he's not going to want to let go of it. And that's why we don't want to let go of our phones because they are so stimulating. And the same happens when you eat something that's high in fat. Biologically, our organisms are designed to look for high caloric foods. This is because when we were in the caves, we needed, we couldn't eat every day. So we needed high caloric foods to survive. Hence why our body now likes them. They are so stimulating. So I liked meat, right? That's where all of this comes to. I liked meat. I was only a child and people noticed I liked meat. And then my family started creating this identity about myself that included this idea of you like meat. And I started learning myself. I am someone who likes meat. And I have to remain someone that likes meat. Or football, you know, I also liked football. And then my family had an idea about me as someone who loves football. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But when football and meat are being given this sense of self, then they are very hard to let go. And what happened to me is I grew up, I was no longer interested in football. But I had this pressure coming on me from the outside and even from the inside because letting go of who you think you are is scary. There's going to be a lot of resistance. The ego is not going to go so easily. Let me tell you that. There's going to be a lot of resistance in the same way as an organism doesn't want to die. Even if it's cancer cells. And they do everything that's in their power to keep alive, to remain alive. And the ego is going to do the same to you. As you start disidentifying with it, you're going to see there's going to be pushback, a lot of energy, a lot of opposition. The ego is going to defend itself, of course. So I had this idea as someone that loves meat and loves football. But then I didn't like meat anymore. I moved out of my country, I came to Europe, and here I saw that people can eat all sorts of things. You know, who says you have to eat meat five times a day? That was only a cultural conditioning that I didn't know was cultural. You see, I thought, That's how things are. And this was very liberating, what happened to me when I moved to a different culture. But anyway, that's beside the point. The important thing is that my sense of self suddenly grasps, holds on to the idea that I like meat and to the idea that I like football and maybe the idea that I like this football team or this is my favorite color and this is what I like to do, these are my hobbies. And if you multiply this by a million, a personality gets born. This is the ego, who you think you are, along with what you like, what you dislike. And we identify with it for the fear of not being anybody. And then I felt, I have to like meat, I have to like this football team, because if I don't like it, I'm, I'm nobody. I, have, I don't have anything interesting to my personality. Another thing that we said about the ego is that the ego holds on very strongly to past and future. and keeps you trapped in time, in thought. If there's no thought, there's no past and there's no future. If you cannot remember about something, eventually that's going to disappear. No one's going to remember what you did, so the past dies if you don't hold on to it. We do hold on to it because we are afraid that if I don't have my past, and I don't have my memories, I'm not going to have anything, and my life's going to be just miserable. And this is the ego convincing you of that. In fact, the more memories you hold on to, the less present you're going to be for the people that need you. And the same with future. The ego creates a plan, we said, you give your ego, your mind, the task to make you happy, to find happiness and give it to you. And the ego, in all its cleverness, creates a plan and says, okay, you need to become a CEO, you need to have your face in the front cover of Forbes magazine. <laughs> And then on you go, you try to achieve this that your mind's saying you need to achieve. And thus, the ego keeps you trapped in time. We emphasized the practice of self-observation. We said we don't want to fight the ego, we don't want to fight our minds. All we want to start doing is bring consciousness to them. Bring in this dimension of the observer, the dimension that observes your mind's content. There are different types of observation. One is the observation of your mind. When your mind starts talking and saying all sorts of things, you can listen to it. If you're there to listen to your mind, that's observation. That's what we're talking about. When suddenly you detect your thoughts in your head as they are being triggered and insulting someone that's driving in front of you and you think, what's this stupid person doing? Who does he think he is to cut me off like that? If you can detect those thoughts as they are being said by your mind, so to speak, That's observation. Or it can be emotional observation too. If suddenly I can feel this surge of heat and fire in my stomach and I realize I am angry. Or if I can be there when the fear overcomes me and my airway starts tightening and I can't breathe and I'm panicking and there's a ball in my throat and I can feel my heart beating like crazy and I can feel my lungs, my breath very shallow and quick and suddenly I know I'm panicking. This is observation two. And as you can tell by the tone of my voice When I said that, the observer, this faculty that you have in you that observes the emotion, is not part of the emotion itself. We can say the observer observes the emotion, but it doesn't touch it. And this is how you can deal with anger. This is how you can deal with panic. If you have panic attacks... You don't need to learn breathing exercises, although breathing exercises can help. What you need to learn is to find this observer in the heat of the moment. Can you find the observer when your mind is racing at thousand thoughts per minute? If you can, you regain your ground. That's how equanimity comes into your life, even temperedness. Because when you can catch the anger as it's being triggered, that's when you have choice. If you're absent, you don't have any choice. Then you end up saying something that you later regret. And then on the next morning, you apologize and say, I didn't mean what I said. But guess what? What said, it's said. You cannot change it. You're going to have to deal with the consequences of your absence. You weren't there. Your presence wasn't strong enough to not be destabilized by the intensity of the emotion and the thoughts that came with it. There are two factors in life that are always constant. I don't want you to believe me. I want you to find evidence for this yourself in your life. Pay attention and figure this out for yourself. There are two things we can say in your life that are constant. One is that which observes. We did this exercise of you looking in the mirror when you were 15 years old and you looking in the mirror when you are 28 years old and realizing that The one who looks into the mirror, the one who looks through your eyes, so to speak, is constant, is always the same. It has no content to it, so it doesn't have an age, doesn't change in time. It's one of the things that's constant because it's outside of time. It's the observer. The second thing that's constant and that's outside of time, what do you think it is? It's the present moment. We said the past and the future don't exist as such. They don't have any intrinsic reality. All they are, the only reality that they have is mental. If you don't think, there's no time. It's only that your mind's so active and constantly inviting the future, constantly thinking about the past. That's why time exists, because you think about it. If you have no thoughts, when your mind is quiet, you're present. And suddenly, you return to the present moment, when there's a gap of stillness, of internal quietness. And then you look around your room. And there's this sense that Even though you've been in this room for the past 20 years, you haven't looked at it properly. And you start observing things around you. And there's a lightness that comes into your life. An alertness. Your mind's quiet for a second. And when you're in the present moment, you are open. You are not looking after something. You are not grasping things. You are receptive. You're open and receptive. That's what being present is. You are curious. And when there's curiosity, you are not pulling or pushing things away. You're just there. Totally present. I started the episode with the story about the man who, in misfortune and in fortune, at least that's how other people perceive it, he remains in this state of non judgment. That's presence. When you don't judge things, you're present. You're there for life. But when you're judging things as good or bad, you're always after something. If you judge things as good or bad, that's only because you want something. If you have no desire at all, if you're present and you're curious, then the mind is empty, quiet. And when the mind is quiet, I told you there's no time, there's no thought. And since there is no thought, there is no judging. You don't judge things as good or bad anymore. You observe them. You're there to receive them. That's how you reconnect to life. That's how you reconnect to the present moment. That's how you find a deeper part in yourself. It's not something that you can explain what it is that you found. No, because we said we cannot put that into words. But you can feel it. It's a feeling of attention, of alertness, of receptivity. It's highly sensitive to things around you and inside you. And in that state, you will learn there is a joy that comes into your life when you return to that state of consciousness that's underneath thought, when you're able to connect to it, joy arises inside. And that joy is what Jesus talks about when he talks about the parable of this merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Selling all that you have points to giving up your ego. Letting go of your thoughts. Letting go of your need to control things. There is a sacrifice that needs to be made in order to find this joy that comes with the present moment. And the sacrifice is the idea that I have of who I am. When we let go of that, we open ourselves to life. If we don't let go of that, we're always after things, desire and aversion. We're always scared of something, wanting something, Concerned about how I can get it. And that's when I'm judging. So to not judge means to be in a state of receptivity. Not in a state of grasping things, pulling things, or pushing things. But rather a state of curiosity. Surrender is a concept that is very important in spirituality. Now, usually, surrender has a very negative connotation. To some people, surrender implies defeat or giving up or failing to rise to the challenges of life, becoming lethargic. But true surrender is something different. Something entirely different. It does not mean to passively put away with whatever comes to you and do nothing about it. But what it means is the profound wisdom of yielding rather than opposing the flow of life. A wise person is one that recognizes that life has a flow. It's like a river. It's going somewhere. The best attitude that you can take is one of recognizing this and using the force of the stream by going in the same direction as the river. If you're caught up in a river, you're not going to survive if you go straight to the shore. You're not going to be able to do that. What you have to do is start swimming in the same direction as the river and slowly, slowly, patiently go towards the shore. So the fool is the one who doesn't know that life has a flow, and tries to go in the direction that the ego tells them they should and ends up going against the current. While the wise person is the one that recognizes there is a flow and my best chances are if I flow with it. Not only is this something that comes into your life as you start paying attention, Because the less you judge your thoughts, the more of a presence of mind you nurture in your life, the more you're going to start living by accepting things as they are. And vice versa. The more you start accepting things as they are, the more you are going to be able to recognize this state of consciousness underneath your life. There's this good American spiritual teacher by the name of Michael Singer and he wrote an autobiography which is really good, it's called The Surrender Experiment and he talks about surrender, basically he did a surrender experiment where he said I'm gonna surrender to life and since he made that decision all sorts of incredible things happened to him So that the surrender experiment ended up being very successful. (laughs) And he writes about his adventures in the book. It's very good if you like that kind of thing. But anyway, Michael Singer talks a lot about surrender because he says it's the highest path. He started his spiritual quest or his quest of healing by trying to meditate a lot. And eventually he realized surrendering was much more effective than just trying to meditate and sit in a lotus posture for hours and hours without stop. There's a place to that, yes, and I'm sure he would agree with me. But surrender is as important, if not more. What is surrender? Surrender means not to oppose the flow of life not to oppose the present moment. It's very simple. It always comes down to the present moment. Because the only place where you can experience the flow of life is the present moment. So to surrender is to accept the present moment unconditionally. It's to exchange your attitude of I want this, I don't want that, I'm going there, I'm not going there, I want this and I don't want that. To exchange that for an attitude of openness of, oh, this is what's happening. I'm not going to try to change it, I'm going to be with it. Oh, sadness, okay. Can I give my sadness space? Oh, okay, joy. Can I give my joy space? Oh, okay. Fear. Panic. Surrender is not passive. Because I'm sure many minds are going to react to this and say, okay, then if you say surrender, I'm not going to try to achieve anything. I'm just going to quit my job. I'm going to buy a six pack of beers and I'm going to sit in my couch. That's not surrender. That's passivity. Surrender is not passive, surrender is active. Surrender is being in an intimate relationship to the present moment, without judging it. And suddenly I look around, and I notice there are so many things I've never even paid attention to. The flowers, nature, my room, we were talking about your room, weren't we? Let's play an experiment with your room. Let's try to reflect together on the question of what is the essence of your room? So start paying attention, observe around you and try to understand with me what the essence of the room is. In my room, I have a TV in one corner. I have a sofa opposite to the TV. I have a desk in the third corner and in the fourth corner I have a bookcase with a lot of books and I have three paintings hanging on the walls. Okay, are those things the room? Are those things the essence of the room? No, they are not, you're right. They are the content of the room. They are not the essence of the room. Okay, let's keep going. What about the walls? We have the walls, the ceiling, the floor, the windows, the door. Are those the room? No, they are not. They are the boundaries of the room. They define the room. But in themselves, they are not the room. They just define the boundaries. So what is the room? What is the essence of the room? The essence of the room is space. The space that allows things to be there. And to that we never pay attention to. So paying attention to space is a way in which you can bring presence to your life. When we pay attention to those things that we never pay attention to, that's a good way in which I can bring presence into my life. Can I pay attention when I wash my hands? Can I pay attention to the sensations? Can I be there when I wash my hands, when I take a shower? Most of us, when we are showering, we are not there at all. We are already in the office. Now, the same thing that applies to the room, which is the essence of the room is the space that allows everything to be there, the same thing applies to you. You, in your essence, are not the content. This is the ego. This is your thoughts, your emotions, your sense perceptions. Nor are you your body. Those are the walls. But what you are is the space of consciousness that allows everything to happen. And obviously this cannot be talked about. Because words can only describe the foreground of existence. The background of existence you can only taste for yourself. Don't hope events will turn out the way you want, says Epictetus. Welcome events in whichever way they happen. This is the path to peace. Why do I want things to be a certain way? We all want something. Either I want to move to a different house, I want a different job, I want someone to come into my life. But why is it that we want the things that we want? It's because our mind convinces us that when I have that, I will be happy. And we take our mind very seriously. The more we observe the mind, the less seriously we take it. And then, slowly, we can let go of our preferences. And when we do that, we learn that if I accept life for what it is, there's no internal struggle. The tension of, I want things to be like this, but they are like that, and that's polar opposite, that's the tension that creates anxiety. That's the tension that creates depression. If I can let go of my preferences, I then come closer to this state of acceptance, of curiosity. And when I do that, ironically, I start finding the joy that comes when I am no longer opposing life. I say ironically, Because the reason why the mind creates the tension in the first place is because it is looking for this joy that comes only to you when you stop doing that. (laughs) When you pay attention to the present moment, you return to a place where you can ground yourself. Jesus says, I have meat that you know not of. This means, I am being fed In a way that you can't see. Or in other words. I am being sustained. By a power. That you don't know. And obviously we don't know it. Because it cannot be understood with the mind. It's the life force. It's the power that comes to you. When you return to the present moment. Eckhart Tolle calls it the power of now. The Buddha also talks about desire. And the Buddha says, I don't know if you know this story, after the Buddha was enlightened, he created this method through which he could pass the wisdom that he had gained to other people. And he created this system of four noble truths, as it's called, which we can say is the essence of the Buddha's teaching. The four truths are as follows. The first one concerns the fact of suffering. And it says, Life has always in it an element of suffering. Birth is suffering, death is suffering. Eventually you're going to suffer in one way or another. The second truth explains why the suffering is there, and it says, desire is what creates the suffering, or clinging is another of the translations. That's holding on to things, grasping things. I want this, I don't want that, I need this, I don't need that. And the Buddha says, in the third noble truth, If you let go of the desire, you let go of the suffering. And basically the fourth noble truth is the Buddha's path through which you can do that. Through which you can let go of desire. We're going to try to simplify it here just by saying, how you let go of desire is first by observing it, by detaching from it. How you detach from your desire is you recognize that the desire is there. You watch it arising. You watch your mind's stickiness, your mind's aversion or your mind's desire to have something. And you return to the present moment. When you observe your mind, you are already one foot out. One foot is already into the present moment. If you take the second step and let go of your mind by paying attention to something in you, such as your body, your breath, or outside, such as sounds around you, the space, we spoke about the space, then you become present. And suddenly there's a feeling of lightness. You let go of the heaviness of your mind. And that's an empty state from the perspective of the mind. When the mind is quiet, nothing's happening according to the mind. It's boring. But in this state of emptiness, as it's called in Buddhism, suddenly you come much closer to life itself, to a feeling of joy arising in you, peace. Aliveness. Past doesn't exist in that moment. Future doesn't exist. You realize I don't need past. I don't need future to be myself. If I pay attention to the present moment, ground myself, find that canvas underneath my mind, then I am being fed by life itself. I don't need to look for anything else. What I was looking for, the happiness I was looking for, is there when I achieve that. But then your mind kickstarts starts again, very quickly. Didn't I have to call friend? something like that the mind says and the presence gone but don't worry so much about it because the gain that was made by that moment of presence is going to remain with you and slowly you start adding seconds of presence first is 1 second then 2 seconds then 10 seconds and then slowly i start I learn, in the same way as I learn to ride my bike, then I learn to inhabit the present moment more fully. By keeping an eye on what my mind is saying. And then I live like this warrior on enemy territory. Hyper alert. Marcus Aurelius wrote, Accept whatever comes to you, woven in the pattern of your destiny. For what could more aptly fit your needs? What he's pointing to here, he's saying, there is an intelligence that sustains life. If you let go of your preferences, you're going to be fed, you're going to be guided by... A deeper intelligence that's always there. There is a higher force to life. You don't need me to convince you. Just pay attention and you will see it. What happens if you cut your hand? How do you heal it? Well, you don't. You just clean it and it heals by itself. I was talking to my neighbor the other day. He's an elderly man. Um... He has something in his leg, which keeps him frustrated. But he likes to enjoy his garden, and he was planting something. And uh, we had this discussion. I don't know how we came to the subject, but he told me something very wise. I don't grow my flowers. It is God who grows them for me. That's what he said. We don't have to use the word God if you have a strong resistance to it. Swap the word. What he said is, I don't make it rain. I don't give the sunshine. I don't pull the flowers up so that they grow. No, I just water them, remove the excess weeds and then the flower blooms by itself. In the same way that your wound heals by itself. And if you let go This is what Marcus Aurelius is saying. If you let go, then this intelligence takes over your life. And then you end up somewhere where you never even planned you were going to go. That's the beauty of it. That's what happened to me, actually. That's why I'm here talking to this. I had different plans, but I learned to trust life. Joseph Campbell said this, that I want to leave you with. He said, we must be willing to let go of the life we planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us. Let go of your preferences. Let go of your mind's desires, aversions. How you do that is you return to the present moment. You return to your breath, to your sense perceptions, to things around you, to your feet touching the ground. Can you feel them right now? Can you feel your hands? It's not as easy because you have to redirect your attention from your mind and from trying to understand what I am saying You take that out and refocus it and bring the attention into your hands. It takes a few seconds, but when you do that, you realize my hands are alive. There's a flow of energy that's there that usually I'm not conscious of it because I don't care to pay attention to it. I'm always thinking. But if I pay attention to my hands, they are alive. And suddenly you're back in the present moment. And you realize this life that's in my hands is not only in my hands, it's also in my chest, in my body. And this is the source of that feeling of joy that I was talking about. It's subtle, you need to really pay attention to it, but it's strong very strong, and the more you pay attention, the more you connect to it. Actually, let's give you one more story that's coming to my mind, before I leave you. It's a Zen story about a disciple that was with a Zen master, and they were walking around the mountains and the hills, and this was only a junior disciple, and he had a lot of questions in his mind about what Zen is, and what he should be doing, and how he can best practice. And they make a quick pause to have something to eat or whatever, and the disciple breaks the silence and says, Master, can I ask you something? By all means, says the master, how do I enter Zen? By this, obviously, he meant how do I enter the state of consciousness that the Zen tradition points to? And the master replies and says, can you hear that mountain stream? The disciple had been thinking about the best way to break the silence and how to ask the question and what is he going to think about me if I ask this, that he had hardly paid any attention to anything around him. And he didn't even know that there was a mountain stream. It was very, very far, almost dissolving, merging with the clouds. The disciple could see it now and started paying attention to it. And suddenly, he realized he could hear something. And he got excited and says, yes, I can hear it, I can hear it now. And the master replies, enter Zen from there. The disciple is in awe at this and has his first glimpse of enlightenment. But a few minutes pass and the mind kick starts again and he starts thinking and he says to the master, Master, I've been thinking, what would you have said if I would have told you that I couldn't hear the mountain stream?" And the master replies, enter Zen from there. (laughs) I can see you're waiting for an explanation. The mountain stream, the sound of the mountain stream, has nothing to do with entering the state of consciousness that they are trying to find. It's the act of paying attention to the present moment that creates that. So even if there is not a sound or a mountain stream, you don't have to go looking for a mountain stream. All you have to do is start paying attention to whatever it is. It doesn't have to be a mountain stream. It can be a flower. It can be a song. It can be a feeling in your body. It can be a thought. It can be the sky, the moon, the clouds. It can be every step that you take. It's like Thich Han, which, who was a beautiful monk. Uh, he died recently, actually. He said, feel as if with every step that you take, in every place that you take a step, a flower blooms in the ground. Can you live like that? You're going to be so present if you try living like that that maybe, a flower is going to be there. (laughs) Anyway, I recognize this is getting a bit longer than I wanted it to be, so I'm gonna leave you. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already. Don't forget to check out the meditation episodes that I um, included in the podcast too. And uh, yeah, don't forget to find us on social media under Truthfully Talking. That's all for now. Take care. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.